Hi guys, I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. And we are here recording Lost in the Woods. Welcome back. Yes, we're back from our trip now. Yes, it is really, really cold here. So we are bundled up in our heating blankets and we are going to bring you a very disturbing story today. Hmm, I love it. Maddie, of course, does not know anything about this story as of yet, <laughs> I don't think. No. No? Okay. Anyway, we haven't recorded in a while because last week's episode we recorded early because we were headed off to California. Super great trip. You guys will hear all about that. Don't worry. But yeah, it's really cold here in comparison. Maddie's struggling a little bit, I think, to be alive and alert this morning because we don't normally record in the morning and it's 8 a.m. Yeah. It is. Which means I've been up for about three hours and Madison's been up for about three minutes. So today we are bringing you the kidnapping case of Ursula Hermann, which comes to us from Germany and is one of the most famous cases in Germany. It's maybe a little less well known here. Yeah, I don't know it. So Maddie hasn't heard of it. So yeah, little less known. I'm ready to hear a famous case from Germany. I know, it's kind of fun. I don't think we've been to Germany. I'm going to do my best to pronounce things properly. We will see how that goes. I will give you guys a little warning here at the beginning. This does involve a crime against a child. And I know that those cases can be a little harder for some people to deal with. We also have a little bit of animal cruelty in this case. So I'm really glad I'm doing with this first thing in the morning. Maddie's regretting her choices right now. It's fine. So because this is a German case, there are limited resources for us in English. Um, although there was a really good article in The Guardian by Zahn Rice on this case, there's also a podcast, a very in-depth podcast called... And Führung? I think that's as close as you're going to get to what Google says it is. Yeah, or something <laughs> like that. But this is in German. So obviously we are unable to listen to this, but it does sound like if you want more in-depth information, you could go find this podcast and get more. If you speak German. If you speak German. Our story starts on Tuesday, the 15th of September in 1981. So this was the first day of school after summer break for 10-year-old Ursula Hermann, which is spelled like Ursula, but that's not how it's pronounced. Or at least that's not how I heard it pronounced in other places. Okay. So sorry if that's wrong. The first day of school was much shorter than a normal day at school, and... Usla had a variety of after-school activities that she planned to attend after school. So first she practiced piano with her older brother, Michael, and then she made a 15-minute bike ride on her bright red bicycle from her home in Eching to her cousin's hometown of Schondorf, where they would both attend their gymnastics class that afternoon. Okay, so Eching. It's a very small town. It's about 40 kilometers or 25 miles west of Munich, Germany. Schondorf is roughly a two and a half mile, four kilometer trip south. To make this journey, Usla would ride with Amersi. So she would ride with, yeah, Amersi to her right, which is the lake, and Wentzgarden on her left which translates to vineyard, but is actually a densely beautiful woodland area. Interesting. Yeah. So side note, Amersi is formed as a result of Ice Age glaciers melting and has a maximum depth of 81 meters and runs approximately 25 kilometers or 15 and a half miles roughly north to south. 
and its shores are dotted with small villages and properties owned by some of the Germans' wealthiest citizens, including politicians and prominent businessmen. Yep. So rich people live on the lake. That does not surprise me. This picturesque journey was one that was very well-traveled by Ursula and her red bike. Also nearby the lakeside path as you approach Schondorf is the Longheim Boarding School, which is one of the most prestigious boarding schools in South Germany and was founded in 1905. The school now houses up to 300 students and attracts applicants from Germany and all around the world. Longheim began as an all-boys school but now takes male and female applicants. The school even has its own private dock at the Emersee, so at the lake. Now, this school did take day students from Schondorf and surrounding areas, but Ursula and her siblings would not have attended this prestigious school. Okay. So they were kind of middle-class family. So Ursula's mother was a stay-at-home mom taking care of Ursula and her three older siblings. So she's the baby... Her father was a teacher of theology and handicrafts. Which I'm thinking maybe that's like shop class. Maybe he's a teacher of theology and also does shop. We don't really have like a handicraft anything at our schools, but we do have guess. we do have shop, which would be similar, I would think. Whilst being respected in their community, they are not by far the wealthiest residents in their little village. The Hermans had inherited their land from Usla's grandfather, who had acquired it as grazing land many years prior. Right, so they they don't live in this area, this village, because they have a ton of money. They live in this village because the property was inherited from their family, and that's how they ended up here. So once gymnastics classes were over, Usla went to the nearby home of her cousin, where her aunt had made dinner. At 7.20 that evening, Ursula's mom called her aunt to say it was time for Ursula to come home. Being September, it was still light out, but her mother wanted her to make the 15-minute drive before it got dark. This would basically be like Cordelia being at Auntie Hannah's house, which is just a couple miles away, and riding her bike from Auntie Hannah's house to here. Auntie Hannah's house, though, is about three and a half miles, so just a little bit further than this would have been. Which, in this day and age, I would not send Cordelia to Auntie Hannah's on her bike either direction. At 7.50, Ursula's mom called her aunt again, wanting to know what was keeping her daughter. At this point, I would assume that she's irritated that her daughter's not there, hadn't followed instructions, hadn't left when she told her to. However, Ursula's aunt insisted that she had left on time as instructed. So it was at this point that worry began to set in for both women, and they both sent their husbands out to search for her. Mm -hmm. So Ursula's father is coming from Eching, and her uncle from Schondorf, and they're both traveling the same direction towards each other that Ursula would have driven Mm -hmm. so that they can meet up in the middle and hopefully find her along the way. Yeah. So each were calling out her name, which was echoed through the dense forest as they traveled along the darkening path. I, no, I can't even imagine this. Likely they expected to find her, like maybe she had fallen off her bike or gotten a flat tire. And this has happened to me when I was a child where we didn't come home in time and our parents came out looking for us. I had crashed off of my bike and was walking it limping and bleeding, and my sisters were walking along with me. So this is not, this would not have been an uncommon thing for this time, right? Like something happens, you go out looking, you usually find them or they're home when you get back. So unfortunately, the men met in the middle with no sign of Usla or her bright red bike. Uh At 8.35, so just an hour after her first call to her aunt, Ursula's mother reported her daughter missing to the local police. At this point, neighbors were already out searching alongside the family, and police joined the search as well. Rain began to fall, but this did not hamper the search efforts. Volunteers and police continued searching, 
fueled probably by the thought of her out there alone and cold and lost. So approaching midnight, they brought out canines. So one of the canines alerted his handler that he had picked up the scent and he followed it off the trail or off the road into the dense woodland. No, 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 no. no, no. About 20 meters or 67 feet from the path, they found Usla's red bike. There was no immediate sign of struggle and the bike was in perfect working condition and just propped up against a tree. And alarmingly, her untouched gym bag was still hanging from the handlebars. Almost as if she was lured off the path. Something, right? And this is a pretty densely wooded area. So the fact that nobody saw her bike from the path... Isn't surprising. Is not surprising, exactly. They did find a pair of binoculars abandoned near the bike. Sketchy. Could be a coincidence, but still sketch. I doubt that's a coincidence. They also find something very strange in the trees. It's a bell wire that is hanging over six feet up and is over 153 yards long leading into the woods. A bell wire? Yeah, so it's like what you would set up to like ring a bell from one place to another. What the fuck? Yeah, right? However, they assumed that it was put there by children and paid no further attention to it. And it later disappears. It's a really good way to lure a little girl into the woods. Or a good way to signal something to someone, right? I mean, I don't know. I think it's strange, one, that it would be up so high Um, if it was children. I could 100% see Cordy going and chasing a little bell noise into the woods. Well, yeah, because what would you think if you heard the sound of a bell coming from the woods? And I was 10 years old. And you were 10 years old. You'd probably think it was somebody else with a bike that was hurt, maybe needed help or something along those lines. Like fairies. You would, yeah, you would think it was fairies. <laughs> well, and think about it. If she had taken her bike into the woods and leaned it against a tree to look around for this bell sound, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. On Wednesday, the 16th of September, Threw me off. Threw me off. Because it's written differently. Yeah. So on September 16th, which is a Wednesday, in the year of 1981, I don't know how to read dates anymore, at first light, the search resumed. Right. So I would take a wild This is the next day. Yeah, this is the next day. This is the next day. Maddie just made that way more complicated than it needed to be. This search was a large-scale search. Police were scouring the woods, But the search extended to the water with police boats and divers searching the shoreline. So a helicopter was even brought in to search the water from the sky. A bulletin went out on the local German radio about the missing girl. 10 years old, 1.43 meters, which would be about 4.7. Short blonde hair, last seen wearing dark green cords, gray woolen cardigan, and red-brown sandals. On the morning of Thursday, the 17th, so 36 hours missing, the Herman residence was jarred out of its worry by the sound of their phone ringing. At first, there was silence on the line, then a short jingle played. Then more silence, then again the same jingle played, and the caller disconnected. Now... I don't like that. I don't know. I don't fuck with that. No. There are so many things about this that I do not like. And I'm going to actually play the jingle for you guys. So I don't know about you guys, but I find that creepy as fucking hell. I don't like it. I don't like it. I just, it's creepy. I don't know why, but it's like the whole idea of, that being on the other line of my phone, just, mm, nope, nope. So the Hermans immediately notified police and quickly police officers were dispatched to their house with recording equipment should the caller try to call again. They weren't sure at this point if it had something to do with Usla's disappearance or if it was just kids 
or somebody playing a prank on them. Because mm-hmm. I could see either way at this point. The family did receive a further three calls with the police listening in, each followed by the same pattern and odd behavior. First silence, then the jingle, then silence. But it gets weirder, you guys. They actually recognize the tune, which is actually a jingle that plays on three radio, which is a very popular German radio station. This jingle plays before and after their traffic bulletin and has since 1971. Weird. That's a weird... Isn't that so weird? What a weird thing to choose. Just so that you have a clear understanding, I'm going to play the chime again. Maybe he wants recognition from one of the most popular radio stations, which is why he's using their jingle. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. But why are they just hanging up at this point? I mean, there's no... I don't know. So over the course of the evening and into the next morning, the family would receive a total of 10 or 11, depending on the source you read, of these mysteriously odd phone calls. That's a lot of calls to receive in a two-day period or basically Mm -hmm. a one-day period because it's into the evening and into the next morning. Yeah. And here's where things get even stranger. Okay, so around noon on Friday the 18th, An envelope arrived addressed to Mr. Herman, and it was marked as urgent. The address on the envelope was not handwritten, but was typed out using a typewriter. Inside was a letter, again, not handwritten, but curiously made, from cut-out words and letters from a local, wide-circulating tabloid newspaper. I think it's called The Build. Anyway, this is a newspaper that would be in just about everyone's household. So no narrowing it down there. Yeah. And in the 1980s, Bild sold more than 5 million copies of this newspaper every day. Yeah. So definitely no narrowing it down with that. Yeah. So needless to say, this was a ransom letter, which I find so almost juvenile to write a letter this way. Almost like something you would see in like a bad crime movie or something. Yeah, for sure. So the letters were in broken German and had a lot of grammatical and spelling errors. So the thought is that the errors are intentional or maybe that they couldn't find the exact lettering that they needed from the newspaper that they had in front of them. Mm -hmm. Right? So there's a lot of like small like little errors that make it seem like either they don't speak German fluently or it's an intentional mislead. A rough translation of this note is... And this is the translation from the Zan Rice's piece in The Guardian, or some of it is. And then I found some other information elsewhere, but this is basically the translation. If you ever want to see your daughter alive again... Then pay two million Deutschmark, which is about one point one million dollars in nineteen eighty one. Which now that would be so much more, but that's a lot of money for a middle class family with one income to be asked to pay for a ransom. I feel like what maybe they thought that they were kid. No, because they were calling the house. Yeah, they knew where she lived. Why didn't they? I was going to say maybe they just took the first girl they saw and thought she'd be from a rich family since they were in a rich area. Or maybe they asked the girl for her number, her house number, after they kidnapped her. Oh, God, I don't like that. The letter goes on to explain that they would phone the Hermans using a jingle as their call sign. Right. And you guys, this letter was supposed to be delivered a day earlier. So before the calls began... The Hermans were supposed to get this letter before they ever received a phone call, but they did not. And the letter says, just say if you will pay or not. So they're going to call. They're going to play this jingle. They want you to just say if you're going to pay the ransom or not. That was the instruction. If you call the police or you do not pay, we will kill your daughter. So obviously, Ursula is no longer a missing person and is now officially considered abducted. Mm -hmm. 
So when the phone rang again, and Usla's mother, now understanding what the odd phone calls had met, she immediately agreed to pay the ransom. Right, despite her family not even having that money. She requested proof of life, asking to hear her daughter's voice, but was met with silence. Yeah, and then she got a little more irate, which is completely understandable, and she tried a different tactic, which was to demand Ursula's nicknames for her two stuffed toys. Again, she was met with silence, and the caller disconnected. Once receiving the confirmation from Ursula's mother that they would pay the ransom, the kidnapper sent another letter. This letter did not arrive at the Hermans until after the weekend had passed on Monday the 21st of September. So six days missing now. Yeah, and we'll post a picture of this letter because there's actually a picture of the second letter. There's not a picture of the first letter that I could find. Hmm. So the second letter outlines how the Hermans were to pay the ransom. They wanted two million Dutch marks in used $100 bills packed into a suitcase. How classic. How unoriginal Doesn't of it you. really just sound like it's coming from, like, this is a like cheesy a, crime movie? Yeah, this is, like, literally a shitty, like, heist movie. Yeah. It was to be delivered by Usla's father, but the location of the rendezvous was not specified. He must drive alone in a yellow Fiat 600 going no faster than 90 kilometers per hour. Which is about 56 miles per hour. Why so specific about the car? I find the car very strange. So, one, we're in Germany, and they are requesting a very distinctive Italian car to be used. And not only that, but the family does not own this kind of car, and neither does anybody that they know. So it's a very strange request. I don't really understand it. They also say that if the family involves the police, they will never see their daughter again. And they state that they will release Usla six hours after the ransom is delivered. No, you take ransom for kid. I would never. Yeah, I wouldn't. And especially without a proof of life. No, I would not. So obviously the Hermans did not have this kind of money, but neighbors generously helped raise money and the government agreed to cover the rest, which is something I've never heard of like the government getting involved in the ransom amount. But either way, they were able to actually raise this amount of money. Wow. Which is incredible. Yeah. So all they had to do now was wait for their next instructions and hope that everything turned out okay. But you guys, it's not going to be okay. So no further instructions or letters or calls were received by the Herman family. So... Two weeks go by and they are just sitting around waiting for instructions that never come. They're sitting there with their suitcase full of money, just waiting. I cannot imagine. So the police decide to launch another search to look for Ursula. So they head back out into the forest with a task force to do a more in-depth search and maybe not only looking for her, but maybe looking for evidence or looking for something that might help them identify or locate where she might have gone. So four areas were defined and each were separated into smaller grids. So police would search area by area, grid by grid, probing the ground and leaving no stone unturned. Ten canine or sniffer dogs were also brought in for the search. Okay, so at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday the 4th, of October, so 19 days missing. Oh, my God. Police were on their final grid search. One of the officers searching an 800-meter... Or 875-yard area. ...from the path had hit something soft in the ground with his search probe. Which, so, I'm assuming this is like a dousing rod or a divining rod, which are usually used to find water or freshly disturbed soil in the ground. Either way... I envision something like that, which is like a long metal pole, basically. Mm, That sounds accurate to me. So after calling it to attention of those searching around him, he bent down and brushed some leaves and dirt aside and discovered a brown blanket just under the surface. Uh, But that was not all. 
Beneath the blanket was a flat wooden surface that police thought looked similar to those that would cover a poacher's ammunition stash spot. Right, so there is hunting in this area. And similar to hiking, if you are going to hide or bury food or something that you're going to come back for later, you would want to put something heavy on top of it so the animals couldn't just dig it up. Yeah. Once they'd pulled this to the side, curiously, there was another wooden surface. Mm. This one painted green and spanning about a space of 72 centimeters by 60 centimeters. Or 28 inches by 24 inches. So that's, I mean, it's a good size wood surface. There was sliding bolts and a lock on top. Yep, this is not... I. So this was the top of a buried wooden box. Police surrounded it. They broke the lock with a shovel, opened the lid, and discovered the lifeless body of 10-year-old Usla Herman. Yeah. This is so sad. It's so sad, you guys. So an autopsy was done, and it determined that Usla had been drugged before being put into the box and had likely died within 30 minutes to five hours. So the max amount of time that she lived in that box was five hours. Mm. The kidnappers had built a makeshift ventilation system out of plastic plumbing pipes. However, given the length of the pipes used, a machine would have been needed in order to pump fresh air into the box, which they did not do. And due to this oversight, Ursula had run out of air. Her body was not harmed in any other way. There were no immediate signs of a struggle or any indication that she had tried to get out of the box, like scratch marks or claw marks. So I'm going to guess that she probably actually might have died from the drugs or like died. Well, I think she suffocated and maybe never gained consciousness. Yeah. The box was kitted out. And it appears that the kidnappers may have intended on keeping Ursula alive for at least a time. Yeah, so basically it was outfitted with everything that she would need to survive for a while, right? There was a seat, like a bench built, which is where she was sitting. There was also a makeshift toilet, three bottles of water, 12 cans of Fanta, which is like an orange soda, six large chocolate bars, four packs of biscuits, two packs of chewing gum, a light, a radio, which was tuned to Bayherm 3. Which is the radio station with that goddamn jingle. Yep. It also contained 21 books. Some of the titles were Donald Duck comics, westerns, romance novels, and thrillers. Like The Horror Lurks and Everywhere. How do they put this much preparation to it and not get the air shit correctly? Just an oversight. So obviously they put a lot of work into this, which tells me they intended to keep her alive and maybe even intended on returning her to her family. Realized she was dead and then we're like... But when they went to check on her and realized she was dead, there was nothing they could really do. So the box, like we said, Usla was in a seated position and she was sitting on a built-in bench at the bottom of the box. Her head was actually tilted up like she was looking towards the top or towards the lid. It was 5.4 feet high and 2.4 feet wide. So she would have fit in here, but it would have been a tight fit. It was also not buried very deep, which were the kidnappers not worried about someone hearing her scream or even hearing the radio because I feel like even the radio sound would have been able to have been heard by the searchers. So it, I don't think she regained consciousness at all. So that's where I'm thinking too. I think if she had regained consciousness in the box, then someone would have heard her screaming. Or she would have touched the food and water. Or she would have touched Tried something. Tried to get out something, yeah. But we also don't know. Did they tell her, if you scream, we're going to kill you? If you scream, we're going to hurt your family. Did they warn her in some way? We don't know. But I kind of am hoping that she never regained consciousness and just suffocated, which would have been a... It's kind of like falling asleep. It's a very peaceful or a, you know, as peaceful as dying can be, I guess. But it would have been not painful. 
And like we said, she also did not touch any of the food or the drinks. And also, the press showed up at this scene with permission from the police and were photographing everything and stomping all over any evidence that might be out there. But while processing the box, police did discover a single fingerprint on a piece of duct tape that was around the pipe. Databases used to match fingerprints were around in Germany at the time, but there was no match found. So after USA was discovered, locals were understandably on high alert. The kidnappers had evaded police and had been unsuccessful in gaining their monetary reward for their endeavors. So what would stop them from striking again, basically? Yeah, and there's so many wealthy targets in this community. There was a lot of fear in the community that they may strike again. Well, right, because they didn't get what they wanted. Yeah. Reward for information was 30,000 Dutch marks. Police received an influx of information with 1,800 leads in the first year. That's a lot of leads to, like, sift through. Yeah. So, suspects. On the 8th of October, so four days after Usla was found, police received a tip that they should check out Werner Matzruck. He was 31 years old, very tall and imposing, but did have a beer gut. For some reason, that makes somebody less imposing to me. He left school at 15, indicating that maybe he had poor grammar. It was the thought. He was a trained car mechanic and ran a TV repair business. He was known as quick-tempered and was divorced, but he did have a new girlfriend that had two kids. He was also renovating an old fishing boat, which indicated that maybe he had a workshop or an area where he could build a box. He was in debt and owed the bank more than 140,000 Deutschmarks. So maybe a motive. Mm -hmm. He dreamed about sailing the world. Initially, when questioned by police, Metzark could not remember where he was on the night of Usla's disappearance, which at this stage is four weeks ago. But he says that he will check, which, you guys, I could never tell you where I was four weeks ago without looking at a calendar or looking at my camera roll or looking at something that might tell me or indicate where I had been. But this was really big news in the area and everybody knew, so maybe... True, but is this like a where were you when this happened thing? I mean, I don't know. Maybe. But he was sent home and the next day he was able to provide an alibi saying that he had been playing a board game called Risk with two of his friends and his friends confirmed his alibi. I find it a little strange that him and his two male friends are playing a game of Risk. But that's fine. Maybe they're drinking and playing a game of Risk? Maybe. I do like Risk. I mean, it's a fun game. So forensics teams searched his home and workshop but found no evidence connecting him to the crime. And the fingerprint on the duct tape did not match him, his friends, his wife, or his kids. Or stepkids. Or his girlfriend's kids. Still, he had been in trouble with the law before and was just not sitting well with the police. Also, an interesting fact, his first wife actually worked as a cleaning lady for the Hermans, but he claimed he had never met and knew nothing of the family. Suspicious. Maybe. I mean, maybe. So if you think about people who clean houses, right? Like a lot of times they will clean multiple houses in one day. Is it really suspicious that their spouse might not know all the places that they go or all the houses that they clean? No, I mean, just suspicious that his wife cleaned for them. It's a very... Their kid goes missing, and then he becomes a suspect. It's a very big coincidence. But like we said before, would she have even been a good target for somebody if they knew who she was? No. So I, I tend to lead more on this being a coincidence, personally, but I don't know. Police also hear a story from her that they find very concerning. And trigger warning, this does involve animal cruelty. So she tells a story from 1974, which is seven years before Ursula went missing. Mazurek had returned home from Oktoberfest beer festival drunk. Oktoberfest. We have that here. Oktoberfest in Munich does occur each year and is only about 40 kilometers or 25 miles away from Ecking. Eking. No, you said it right the first time. Did I? Eking. 
You said it great, confident. Okay. I liked it. It was spot on. Perfect. And then you doubted yourself. And then I doubted myself. He came home drunk. Susie, the family dog, who was very lively and maybe not quite properly trained by the family, had knocked over the rubbish bin in the kitchen. Masaryk grabbed the dog and locked him in the basement freezer. The next day, his wife went to the freezer to retrieve something and made the grim discovery. Susie had passed away, locked in a box. I'm not okay. That is, what in the hell? Like, honestly, even if he's innocent, like, I'm okay with him going to jail. It's fine. So even if he had nothing to do with Ursula's disappearance or murder, then maybe it's okay that he still goes to jail anyway. He murdered an innocent dog by putting it in the freezer. Yeah, so... If that was... Yeah, I know. No. Seriously, I can't. Masarek, unashamed of his actions and likely quite hungover, answered when questioned by his then-wife that he had punished the dog with exile to Serbia. Because it's cold. You are such an asshole. (laughs) No. No. Okay, so, like I said before, we may not like this behavior. It obviously shows that he is not an okay guy. He is not a good guy. Poor character. Not good, right? But does that mean that he's guilty of this particular crime? Yes. No. It does not mean that. Put him in jail. Don't let Maddie be on your jury ever. Like, if you have somebody who looks and sounds like Maddie on your jury, demand a mistrial. Demand a new trial immediately. Jail him. Jail him immediately before Maddie gets a hold of him. Okay, so in January of 1982, so four months after Uslo went missing, police made an arrest in the case. None other than Werner Masaryk along with his risk-playing acquaintances. During interrogation, police got nothing from any of them, and after several days, they were forced to release them. Yeah, maybe arresting them was a bit premature at this stage. But police did believe that the alibi was arranged after the fact. And the friends are a little fuzzy on the details and they've changed, but nothing was found in any of their houses. So they really just have no evidence to hold them, which is why I'm surprised they arrested them. But maybe the system works a little different. I would assume it works different. Yeah, or at least little parts of it, right? In February of 1982, a month later... Police made another arrest, but they were not willing to give up Masarek just yet. They arrested another acquaintance of his, Klaus Faffinger. So he's an unemployed mechanic and has a drinking problem. Yeah, his landlord, who he owed money to, had been the one to take his name to police, claiming that he had witnessed his tenant with a spade strapped to the side of his moped. So like a shovel. On the first day of interrogation, he claimed he had no knowledge or involvement in the kidnapping. But on the second day, nervous and shaky from alcohol withdrawal, Favinger agreed to talk. And this is the story that he had to tell. He told police that in early September, Masarak had asked him to dig a hole in the forest in return for 1,000 Duschmark and a color TV. Ooh, seller. Dig a hole for the for that? And you do it. Yeah, I mean, Alcoholic, it's a color TV. Floyd? Yeah. Hell yeah. Finally, there was a break in the case, but it was short-lived. Mm. Police took Favinger out to the forest and asked him to lead them to the area where he had dug the hole for Masarak. He was unable to get even close to the area that Ursula had been found, and on return to the police station, he revoked his entire statement. Jesus. He was interrogated more than 10 times in the months after this and was sometimes drunk during his interviews. Super reliable. Am I surprised? He, of course, refused to repeat his confession and denied being involved. The confession at the time had only been verbal and no transcript was signed and there was no recording made. Okay, 
So we're not sure how to pronounce the name of this show, but in the summer of 1982, a television program that translates roughly to case number XY unsolved featured Ursula's case to bring attention to it. This show's been around since 1967 as a way to shed light on unsolved crimes. The program was adapted for the BBC as a crime watch, but nothing new came from this. Okay, so later that year, a new team was brought to work on the case. So the new force focused on the metal wire that was running through the treetops. And the reason they focused on this is because it had been found running from where the bike was found to the burial site. So they believe now that it was actually an alarm system set out by the kidnappers. And interesting story, we find out that it was actually boys from the nearby boarding school who had taken the wire down. One boy went to the headmaster thinking it might be connected to the case, and the headmaster went to the police. So not only did boys from the boarding school take down the alarm system or the wiring, but they put it in a box and still had it. Sick. Yeah. All right, a mask was also found in a hollow tree. Basically a plastic bag with two slits cut out for eyes. Really phenomenal mask. Don't like that at all. I mean, plastic bag, slits cut out for the eyes. Not only that, but it's like a year old. Like, it looks old. It's been there for a while. So they do believe that this is connected, which to me says that if the kidnapper or kidnappers were wearing this, then they intended on not killing I honestly think that they intended on not killing her. I mean, they worked all hard to make this box, and then she just... But again, nothing came from any of this for decades. Yeah. So in 1984, a new suspect comes to light. It was 35-year-old former police officer who had been shot while on duty. He owned an antique shop. He was familiar with the area because he used to hunt there. His car had been seen in the area several times, including the day that Uslo went missing. And when police searched the woods, they had some help from some hunters. And guess who was in that bunch? Yep. And as we know, they love to inject themselves into searches. He's also in debt, so there's some motive. Yeah, and his life was actually ruined by this investigation, and he died six years later. Remember, he was only 35. How'd he die? I don't know. I didn't say. I couldn't even find his name. But he was seriously considered and hounded for a long time. In 2005, police reattempted DNA analysis of the box, hoping that strides in genetic science may assist in finally solving this case. Guess what? And guess what? They got a hit. They got a hit. A small amount of genetic matter that was found on one of the screws holding the box together was a genetic match for a sample found at another crime scene years later. Hmm. So. Nope. Don't get too cocky. All right. So in May of 2006, a wealthy woman was brutally murdered in her Munich-based penthouse. A sample of genetic data was taken from glass in the penthouse on the night of the murder. It was an exact match for the box. But, you guys, the match that they got belonged to the wealthy woman's nephew, who was the person that had murdered her. And at the time of Ursula's disappearance, he was a small child. Wait, so then if it... Okay, so the genetic material that they find in the box matches the genetic material from this woman's murder. This woman was murdered years later... After Ursula's Yeah, in 2006. Right. So yeah. she's murdered in 2006 by her nephew. So the DNA matches her nephew. But her nephew was a small child uh, when does... Ursula went missing. But how does a small child's DNA get on a screw that's in a box that Ursula's found dead in? It didn't. This is cross-contamination at the lab. So a full investigation found that it was an error for the two cases to be connected, and it appeared there had been a mix-up at the lab, some sort of cross-contamination of the samples. I hate to break it to everyone, but um, the judge ruled it that there was no connection between these two cases. Obviously. so Because how is a child building a box and putting a... They're not. 
And that's not to say that, I mean, they could have jumped to conclusions like, oh, maybe he was related to somebody that did it. Maybe he was in the workshop when this box was built or something along those lines. But the fact that both cases were processed in the same lab kind of, it made them realize they didn't think there was a connection. They just think it's cross-contamination, which human error, right? We can't really do much about that. It's unfortunate. It happens. It's not the worst one I've seen. I've seen worse. So you guys, time is running out for this case because the crime is not classified as a murder. Rather, it is classified as a kidnapping resulting in a death. And the statute of limitations for such a charge is 30 years. So if they don't find the person or persons responsible, they could be free to wander the streets even if caught. I literally... I'm sorry. I have a huge issue with statute of limitations. We won't get into that now, but no. Nope, nope, nope. So in 2007, the case had focused again on Werner Maserak. Shocking. They just can't seem to prove it's this guy, but they also can't seem to rule him out. So forensic team searched his property again. He was asked to provide a saliva sample. His profile was run against the known sample on the box. There was no match found. And... The fingerprint doesn't match him. The DNA doesn't match him. I'm not really sure why they are so focused on him. I'm wondering if they have something that we don't know about. Possibly. They had also, in their search, found an old reel to a real tape recorder. Sound experts tested the tape recorder against police recording made to the Herman residence. The findings stated that this particular model had technical abnormalities that appeared on the recording made from his device. So the recorder and recordings were a match. That's what they said. So they're saying that this recorder or this reel that they found at his house, because they don't. there's not a, a recorder, just a reel from a okay. recorder. And they're saying that the reel... The sounds from this reel, like the stopping, the starting, the yeah. recording, like the distinct sounds that it made matched the recording that was played on the phone okay. for the Hermans. Gotcha, gotcha, I see. If that makes sense. Yes. And on May 28, 2008, 27 years after Ursula went missing. 27 years. Mm-hmm. Masaryk was arrested using the new sound recording evidence. The Hermans were notified a few days before the arrest and told that they would be able to participate in the trial should they wish. So in the German legal, we don't have this here, but in the German legal system, they allow relatives of victims to formally join the prosecution as co-plaintiffs or Nebenklago. They can participate fully if they wish. Being in a position to independently view all evidence, request witnesses, and put questions to the judges. This is crazy. I cannot believe this is a real thing. I want to I wanna go. So Michael, Ursula's brother, who if you remember on the afternoon she went missing had spent some time helping her practice piano, stepped up on behalf of the Herman family. He now had a family of his own, and had become a religious and music teacher at a local secondary school. So in February of 2009, the trial opened in Augsburg Regional Court. The entire trial lasted 55 days. The prosecution presents circumstantial evidence in what becomes a circumstantial case. Obviously, this is a circumstantial case. And yeah. I think they have a lot of unexplained loose ends as well. A lot. So they have the story of Susie, the dog. Which I feel like that shouldn't even be allowed in court, honestly. But as much as I hate him and agree that it speaks to his character. Can we just put him to jail for that? Exactly. Let's just put him in jail for that. That's what I vote. He's in debt, so motive. Owned a workshop, so could have built the box privately. Knows how to do it. A piece of leather was used in the construction of the box, which came from a large belt. Which, this is a stretch. The fact that they're saying, well, it came from a large belt and Maserak has a beer gut, so obviously maybe it could have been his belt. They have no way to tie this piece of leather to him, but they're that's what they're... Like, yeah. So this is probably the strongest, if you could call it evidence, 
which I wouldn't even say that you could, but they did bug his phone and there were recorded conversations of him discussing the statute of limitations on the Ursula case. Not in regards to himself or him committing the crimes, but he discussed that with somebody over the phone, which this was big news, right? Like they're running out of time. It, we're at what, 27 years? They have until 30 years yeah. to convict somebody. But that is one piece of circumstantial evidence that they have. The prosecution also worked really hard to give credibility to Kloss and his confession that he recanted, remember? And guess what? He had passed away long before the trial and could not be called as a witness to clear up whether or not his confession was true. Of course he did. They claim that his confession is accurate because he had a couple details correct, although he had a lot wrong. So the details of the burial site, so like some details from the burial site. Yeah, we're correct. The size of the forest glade. The area of forest that they were in? I guess. I don't know. But I mean, wouldn't he already know that because the... I don't know. And dimensions of the hole, including the soil conditions. Here's my problem with these details. Remember, the press was everywhere. Yeah, he could have just literally gotten them read from this. anyone. Yeah. In, he, a mega, in, a, in the newspaper. Yeah. And then they had the tape recorder, which would be the most controversial piece of evidence in this case. So the prosecution's experts described how the click sound of the button being pressed on the recorder found in Masaryk's possession were identical to the click sounds of the buttons being pressed in the police recordings mm-hmm. at the Hermans. She concluded that it was probable that the recordings were made by the same machine. So I would liken this to our conversations around hair analysis, which are no longer deemed credible in court, right? Because it's a visual comparison where this is an audio comparison. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you can't know. Yeah, for sure. I have serious issues with this piece of evidence and... I'm not the only one. In March of 2010, on the back of, on the back of, of this, this evidence, yeah, on the back of this evidence, that is correct English. That yeah. is, yes, yes. Like this is a result of that evidence. Like on the back of that evidence, it's it's real. Stop <laughs> okay, it. Okay, no. okay. <laughs> I just, <laughs> okay, okay. Werner Meserek was found guilty of extortion and kidnapping with lethal consequences and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Okay, this is where Michael comes in, who we're going to call super brother because this man is amazing. So this is Ursula's brother. He took his position as joint plaintiff in the criminal trial very seriously. He had access to meticulously study 25,000 pages of files on his sister's case. He came across inconsistencies, sometimes adventurous interrogation methods and sloppy investigations. In most of his statements, he is level-headed, just keen to find the truth. I think the best way to explain his position is that he is not totally convinced of Masaryk's guilt rather than believing him to be innocent, right? So that's how I feel. I'm not convinced that he's innocent, but I feel like... There's not enough to send him to prison for life. Exactly. So he actually obsessed so much over this case that it tore his family apart, which makes me really sad. But way to go, Michael. So Michael's statement was basically this. And remember, he has a background in music. Mm -hmm. So he is very skeptical of the acoustic evidence presented by the prosecution even though he was a part of the prosecution himself. (laughs) As the calls made by the kidnapper came from a payphone, he was not convinced an acoustic signature could be identified as the same given the environmental factors and 1980s technology. He wrote a letter to the court, which is a very controversial move for his position, stating that he believed the sound expert's report on the tape recorder was in complete. That is bold. For now, the case remains legally closed, but there are definitely skeptics out there. Right. So uh, as far as I can find, Mesurek is still in jail for this crime. I think I'm on Michael's side. I think I am fine with Mesurek being in jail, though. I think we're all probably fine with him being in jail. (laughs) Sorry. So another 
theory out there is that this entire incident was a prank gone wrong or an accident. So I wouldn't call it a prank gone wrong. I would call it a scheme gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? So a lot of the setup for the kidnapping was extremely childlike. So the food, the books, the comics, could it have been an adventurous group of kids or teens coming up with this scheme for some reason? Yeah, I mean, the Fanta or an adult trying to be like, what is this little kid going to like? Yeah, and a lot of it had like a movie-like feel to it. Like the ideas and the information they got came from some sort of movie. Yeah, like asking for such a large amount of money. Yep. Well, and then they also kidnapped somebody from a middle-class family, asked for a huge sum of money, which obviously this family, well, I mean, they did come up with it, so maybe it wasn't the worst plan. But there were many other children that they could have kidnapped and and gotten a greater sum of money for. Newspaper clippings. The thing that bothers me the most about Masaryk being guilty is the fact that the DNA and the fingerprints do not match him. Mm -hmm. So where is that person? Where is that person? Obviously, someone can... Someone did this. Someone did this, yeah. Somebody did this. That's someone's fingerprint. Yep. So that's kind of the theories that are out there. My theory actually is a little different and I'll just like kind of give it to you guys and then we'll leave you with that. And if you want to hear the full extent of my rant, then you can click on over to Bunker Talk and listen to that. But my thought is that it was actually kids from the boarding school. That's how the wire ended up there. That's why everything is so juvenile and all of that. And the reason that the DNA and the fingerprints haven't matched is because this kid did not commit future crimes. It's not bad. Yeah. I have no idea what I think. I I really couldn't even... I like the boarding school idea, or I just think it's completely unrelated people that were there, and then obviously they probably left town. Here's my my biggest issue is there were so many mistakes made in this, right? How did they continue to get away with it for so long if they were just like some normal person living in the community? Whereas I feel like a kid from this boarding school who probably doesn't live anywhere near this town anymore, who probably graduated from school and left or left school for unrelated issues. So maybe he's in a completely different jurisdiction far away where his issues might not be noticed and he might not raise any red flags. Just a thought. I don't know. I'm thinking it's more than one person either way, regardless. Yeah, I like the children, the boarding school. Uh, but yeah, that is the case of Ursula Herman. There's actually a bunch of podcasts that have done episodes on this. I went and listened to the Fresh Hell podcast because they did an episode and I wanted to get an idea of how to pronounce some of the words. So that's a good one to go check out. So another huge shout out to Sharna Lampert. Thank you so much for helping with research on this case. After our trip last week, we would not have been able to produce an episode today without you. So thank you for that, Sharna. You're amazing. If you want more on this case, click on over to our Bunker Talk. We're going to have some fun conversations over there about it. Otherwise, yeah. Uh, We also have some exciting new Patreons. So in case you guys don't know, we actually just got back from our trip to California where we covered a couple of our cases there. Which all that stuff will be coming out for our Patreons. So if you're interested in extra footage, visual footage, lots of me talking in the car. We did a lot of videos (laughs) in the car giving our... I mean, we went... So I'll tell you, we'll tell you really quick, briefly, one of the cases we covered was the Erica Lloyd case. And we actually went to Jumbo Rocks Campground. We actually went from there to where she crashed her car. We followed all of her last movements. Everything. We GPS tracked everything. We did video and content on everything. And we did it for another case as well. So something to go and check out if you want more information. We'll be talking more about that later. But yeah, that's. That's where we're at. Also, we launched our annual membership, which is 10% off. Yes. And we've already had a couple people sign up for our annual membership. Yes. So exciting. You You get 10% off when you do it. So we have in our new Patreon lineup, we have Ethan Kilgore. We have Kathy Cook. Welcome, you guys. We also have Kayla Florent. I don't know. That sounds good, right? Yeah. Okay. Um... 
Can you read that? I can't even tell what letters are in the middle of that. Ashley Griffith. Griffith. How many F's are in there? Two F's. And then an I? Yeah. T-H? Uh-huh. <laughs> I kid you not. Your name definitely runs together for Maddie. It all looks like just like a, like a, I can't even, it all looks connected and like just like a blob. Yeah. Welcome, you guys. We also have Stephanie Cummings, who is one of our annual membership. Yeah. And then we also had Brian Gruningsman who is a current Patreon and has been with us for a little bit, and he actually joined our annual membership as well. So welcome, and thank you. Thank you very much. Um, We really appreciate all of our Patreons. We are getting your stickers out in the mail today and are so excited to have you. And we're excited for you to get to see all of your new content this month. There's lots of extra content. And then our Patreons... Everybody recommend cases that you would like to see us go visit for real. Like real life go visit because we're going to start planning our next one now. Yeah. Well, I'm already I'm already ready to plan our next trip. So <laughs> let us know what cases if you are a Patreon or are wanting to become a Patreon and want to see extra footage from a certain case that we've done or a case that you want us to do and then go visit. Let us know yeah. so I can start planning our next trip. Yeah, indeed. All right. Yeah, we already have one request for Vesper Peak, which we is already on our list. Yeah, We're that's already on our doing list. That We're summer. just doing that after it gets unsnowy. No. Yeah. All right. So thanks for listening, you guys, and we will see you next week. Yep. Bye. To the teacher. Yeah. Having trouble getting on, but oh I think God. we figured it out. My mom almost just fell oh off her God. stool. Phoenix is upstairs having a meltdown. Yeah, so much drama today. So we were gone last week, and apparently the Zoom in-class fiasco that happened here was quite traumatic. And so today, they're upstairs doing Zoom while we're down here recording, And we get interrupted because they can't get onto Zoom. Phoenix is crying, which, by the way, she also cried at breakfast this morning. I don't know why she's super emotional today, but... She cried into her cereal bowl. Literally. And I'm like, kid, what's wrong? And she's like, I just don't know. With tears, like, streaming down her face. I'm like, what... In the actual hell. Like, you are are five. five. (laughs) You are five. What kind of turmoil are you going through? Why are we crying? And then she comes out here and cries because she feels bad for being late to Zoom. She's just bawling. She, her yeah, eyes she's out. she's very stressed out about like not following the rules or not doing something she's supposed to be doing. So, and I guess she ate in like our like Costco oatmeal squares or whatever they are. Took a bite out of. Yeah, them. they're like the best thing. But she left the bag open last week, and so they got really hard. But I just left them in there because I feared, oh, we could, like, pop them in the microwave for a few seconds and, like, soften them up or whatever. Well, she bit into one today and then was like, this tastes funny. And so... Her, she said she thinks they went bad. Yeah. So her dad's like, okay, well, go throw them away and get something different. She comes back from throwing the entire bag away, just bawling because she doesn't know if they're actually bad and she feels guilty for throwing them away. <laughs> So the turmoil, the turmoil of a five-year-old, it's amazing. I mean, when I was younger, definitely guilt. Still, I think guilt might be one you, of my strongest. She's actually, she's actually very similar to you at this age. Like I see a lot of similarities and Cadence and Cordelia were not like this at this age. So I kind of forgot about like the, like, emotion. the emotional stuff and I'm like, I'm like, okay, you're young. You haven't learned that mommy doesn't handle emotions well and that you have to stop crying. <laughs> Even Maddie, sometimes she'll be like crying and I'm like, you got to stop. You, don't just, just stop. I can't talk to you when you're crying. You have to stop first. And she's like, I can't. And I'm like, then we can't have a conversation. Or I cry. My go- mom goes, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm crying. <laughs> what do you mean? You were mean. Of course I'm crying. By the way, I've never actually mean to her. She's being dramatic. But eh. she does get her feelings hurt more easily, which so does Phoenix. So, And I'm a very 
low emotional. Is that a thing? Low emotional it's person? I like I'm not emotional anymore. You're really not. You're really not. But I, I do have the ability to somehow still hurt your feelings, just like when you were five. <laughs> I don't know. I can't. Some people. If you're in my like, if you're my close friends or family, you hurt my feelings very easily. If yeah. I talk to you on a, if you're like a stranger and you're mean to me, my feelings aren't hurt. Yeah, no, it's true. It's it has to be like, and Phoenix is the same way. Like, if one of her sisters make her feel guilty for something, she just breaks down. But if it's an external outside of our, she's less concerned about it. Yeah. Or, like, I remember I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings when I was younger, too, and I'd get upset about stuff like that, and Phoenix gets upset about stuff like that. Yeah. It's funny. You guys are actually very similar, and Cadence and Cordy were very similar, so there you have it. Fun times. I didn't know I was going to have another emotional one. <laughs> I thought I was done with that shit. <laughs> it's fine. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> you have one normal emotional child. Two psychopaths, and then another emotional child. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what you expected here. Something went terribly wrong. Terribly wrong. Okay. Because the only, the only children I've been exposed to are psychopaths and emotional children. Someone tell me if there's a third. And then when you have, like, the psychopaths, like, picking on the emotional ones, like, it's not good. Rough. It's rough. It's a rough time. <laughs> 